Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're continuing to look at the long conversation between God and Moses at the burning bush. We saw last week that God revealed himself as the self-feeding fire. He burns, but he doesn't burn up the bush because he is self-existent. He doesn't need so many bushes per hour to keep him burning. He is the self-subsistent fire. So that's how he reveals himself to Moses. And then the conversation proper begins with the beginning of our text tonight in verse 7. So we'll start at the beginning of the chapter, though. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, Surely I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, (coughs) and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand your revelation of yourself to Moses at the burning bush. Father, turn us towards yourself. Free our hearts from distraction and from falsehood. Open our minds for the light of your word to shine and the pure truth of you, our God, who is Savior, who comes to save his people, to settle in our hearts. Lord, be with my mouth, 
Help me to speak boldly and accurately about you. Plow up the hearts of your people that they might receive the good seed of the word and produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, the name of God, as you recall, was almost absent from chapter 2. God does not come into the narrative in chapter 2 until the very end of verse 23. We have genocide at the end of chapter 1, and then we have the birth and career of Moses. Then we are told that God knew. And God knew, therefore, He comes and manifests Himself to Moses in a flame of fire, or as a flame of fire, at the burning bush on the backside, the far side of the desert. Somewhere out in the Arabian Peninsula or in the Sinai Peninsula, Moses finds God, or rather God shows himself to Moses. We'll see in our text tonight that God knows his people's plight and that he sends a man to deal with it. He knows his people's plight and he sends a man to deal with it. Verses 7 and 9 alike emphasize how God knows our plight. The Lord said, I have surely seen, verse 7, and then verse 9 ends, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. In fact, both verses 7 and 9 say, God sees and God hears. God doesn't say it twice because he forgot that he just said it. He says it twice in order to emphasize to us, I really do see you. Seeing I have seen the oppression of my people, I have heard their cry, I have heard their cry, I have seen their oppression. He repeats it twice in reverse order to drive home the point. I am the God who sees. I really do see Moses was afraid to look, right? End of verse 6. God was not afraid to look. After 40 years, Moses went out to see the burdens of his people. God had seen the burdens of his people from the very beginning. In other words, we cannot proceed on the assumption that God is ignorant. He's never ignorant. He sees And he hears. If God sees, what does that mean? Your situation is known. Your problems are taken into account. And God reserves the right to intervene in his time, not ours. It's always a tough one to accept, but the Bible is so clear about that. God knows where you're at. And he will help you when he's good and ready. And not until then. And thus the constant cry throughout scripture, How long, O Lord? And Moses could have said that. If he had been like Isaiah, that's what Isaiah said at his calling. But God just emphasizes I've seen. Of course, the negative side, as we would see it, is that you can't fool God. You can't hide from God. 
He sees. He hears. Right, you can try all the tricks that they do in the spy novels. Turn on the shower so that loud running water will confuse the microphones on the listening devices. Shut off the lights so the camera can't see anything. You can't hide from God. You can't stop Him from seeing. You can't confuse His hearing. So God emphasizes it to Moses in terms of, I know your plight and I will save you. But he equally well could emphasize it to us as, I know your heart and you need to repent. I know what you were thinking last night. You need to turn away from that. So God sees and God hears. If God hears, that demands that we pray. If God is listening, we should talk to him. We actually say that in English. I'm listening. The cliche indicating that we're expecting something. Generally an apology. God is listening. He's ready for your prayers at any time. He knows your cries. He pays attention to them and he acts on them in his good time. So God sees, God hears, and God comes to save. Verse 8, I have come down precisely because I see and hear, therefore I have come down to deliver them. Why does God speak this way? We already know that God is omnipresent. The heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. God is immense, the theologians say, which means that he's larger than size, larger than space. It's not that God is, was physically absent from Egypt and had to come down in order to deliver them. Rather, he says it in terms we can understand. We would experience this as local motion, movement in space from heaven to earth to come down to save. How God would experience it, of course, is far beyond anything we can imagine. But God speaks to Moses in human terms and says, I have come down. The God who was and is and is to come. If 90% of success is showing up, our God will always succeed because he is there. He comes, he shows up, he presents himself. He will not flake out or be absent any time that he is committed to being present. God left heaven and descended to this particular bush on the backside of the desert because of his commitment to Abraham's seed. Because he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that's why he came and spoke to Moses about delivering the people. And of course, it's easy to see in this text in verse 8, the foreshadowing of Christ coming down to earth from heaven to deliver us, not out of the hand of the Egyptians, but out of our sins, out of a greater bondage to a worse Pharaoh. 
Could God have delivered the people from heaven? Could it all have been done from the throne room? Of course. Except that that's not how God works. God comes to do this job. He shows up. And what does he promise? Not just deliverance from the hand of the Egyptians, but also a new land to bring them up from that land to a good and large land. We can imagine a deity who would rescue his people but then leave them on their own. Something along the lines of how newly emancipated African Americans in 1865 America were freed from slavery and then told, hope you can find a place to sleep tonight. You're free. Take care of yourselves. It's not how God approached this question. Not only does he free his people, but he gives them a new home. And what kind of a land is it? Well, it's a good land. Milk and honey. Land symbolizes freedom, a place to be. A place of security, a place where you can grow food, raise animals, a place to build a home and a life. God promises all of that to his people. And how large is this land, Lord? Well, he lists here half a dozen nations. These lists go from anywhere from three nations up to ten nations at various points in the Bible. They're almost never in the same order for whatever that's worth. God describes that all these nations live in this land. It's a land big enough for six. If the land can hold six nations, it can probably hold one nation. Right? If you found the perfect lot for your dream home, and well, this lot happens to have six units already built on it, I think it's large enough for a single home. God's way of saying, Moses, my deliverance is not on a small scale. My deliverance is not weak and puny. My deliverance is overwhelming. The land I will give you is six times the size of what a single nation even needs. How, God? How are you going to do this? Right? Moses is probably getting fairly excited by the end of verse 9. God's going to save us? He's going to save my people, my family, my brother and sister who are in slavery back there in Egypt along with all the rest of my relatives? And then God says, of course, Moses, it's going to be you. I will do this through you. Moses was probably really glad that he was still hiding his face because he would not have wanted God to see it at that moment. But here emerges two themes, one that we'll see over and over in the rest of this section, the theme of the reluctant prophet. Jonah clinging wildly to the whale's tongue, as Flannery O'Connor put it. But an even bigger theme, and the theme that emerges throughout Scripture, 
is that when God wants something done, He sends a man to do it. It could have been done from the throne room. Or it could have been done by God as the self-subsisting fire. And certainly through the rest of Exodus, we'll see Him manifesting Himself in the pillar of fire to Israel. But He doesn't lead them as the pillar of fire all by himself. He sends a man to do it. From the calling of Adam to subdue the earth to the calling of Jesus to save the world, God has chosen and sent a man to do his work on this earth. It's a general principle. If God is going to do something, he's going to send a man to do it. And this principle emerges, of course, in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. God is going to provide for my family. How is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do it by me showing up to work five days a week for 30 years or 45 years or however long it takes. God provides. How does he do that? He does it by sending a man to do it. Right, that's why you know, if a family falls on hard times in this church, if a widow is left among us, and we as a church say to her, well, you picked the right church to have your husband die in because we believe that God provides. And she says, that's great. Is the church going to you know, help me out here? Oh, no, definitely not. God will do that. Right? That's not how it works. God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Come now, therefore, and I will send you that you may bring them out. So it's easy to judge Moses as he says, what? Me? Uh, Who am I? God, you have got the wrong guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses doesn't like this idea that God is going to deliver the people, which means that Moses is going to deliver the people. Just as it's easy to dislike the idea that God is going to provide for my family, therefore I need to provide for my family. God is going to end world hunger, therefore I need to give to the poor. God is going to bring in the kingdom, therefore I need to disciple my children to obey King Jesus. The Bible is clear about this. God sends a man to do it. And Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is the ultimate example. Even when God stepped in to do it himself, he sent a man to do it. God sent Moses to do what some of us would consider to be God's job. And that's exactly the point. God's work is done by God's human servants. 
So if you're wondering, how do I do God's work? Well, you fulfill the calling God has placed on you. And you might say, well, what is that? Well, if you're married, God has called you to be a spouse. If you're employed, God has called you to be an employee. If you are a member of the church, God has called you to service in the church. In what respect? Well, think and pray about that. All of us have gifts and needs in the body. And it's easy to say, well, I'm not called to serve in this church. Right? That's what Moses said. Who am I? I would never be an elder. I can't be a deacon. I can't pick up hymnals. Right? Or to say it the other way. Well, I can't collect broken communion cups. I'm the pastor. I'm too good for that calling. As well as, I'm not good enough for that calling. Both ways of evading God's calling. Moses believes himself to be unqualified. I can't do that. God, don't you understand? I'm not a person of status. I'm still working for my father-in-law at 80 years old. God, don't you understand? Cultural insensitivity here. I'm a shepherd. Every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You're going to send me into Pharaoh's court holding my shepherd's staff in my hand. I look like I'm a shepherd out of the desert. I've been doing this too long to look like I used to look in Pharaoh's court. Who am I? I'm not right for this. God's calling is, well, God has one answer to this question. Who are you? God doesn't say, no, no, Moses, you've got all the relevant experience. You know Pharaoh's court, you know your people, you know the desert. Those are the three locales you're going to be in. He doesn't say that. God doesn't try to reassure him about, oh, you're adequate, Moses. Oh, you'll do just fine. In fact, he seems to admit the objection. Yeah, Moses, who are you? That's a great question. It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. I will certainly be with you. God saves. He sends a man to save, but he goes with that man. He's the God who goes with his servant. I will certainly be with you. That is the answer to the problem of whether Moses is qualified. If you're called to office in the church, if you're called to be a better spouse, if you're called to be a faithful employee, God is with you in that calling. I'm tired of this marriage. I don't love this spouse anymore. No, God is with you to help you love. My boss, I I can't do it. No, God is with you to honor your boss. Obey that calling. That's the message that God gives to Moses. And over the next few weeks, we'll look as this 
dialogue goes on. Moses has another objection in verse 13. And another one in chapter 4, verse 1. And another one in chapter 4, verse 10. And then another one in chapter 4, verse 13. Moses has five reasons why he shouldn't go. Well, four reasons why he shouldn't go. And then at the end, uh, fine. Send whoever you want. That finally makes God angry. God's answer to this question of how can I do this job is I will be with you. God comes down and he stays down. It's not, well, I'll come down, I'll commission you, and then I'll return to my throne room. You're on your own, Moses. I will be with you. And it's when you believe that that you can answer the call. When you say, I, I truly don't feel qualified, Lord. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I believe that you're with me. God sends all kinds of providences into our lives. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to live without the use of my leg. Lord, I don't know how I'm going to live if you take my spouse. Lord, I don't know how I'll live if I become poor. If I get sick, if I lose my home, if this, that, or the other happens. I've told you before about one of my high school teachers who on the same day lost, he was a pastor, who was purchasing a house. And some allegations about his past came out on the day that he happened to be buying a house. In fact, they came out in between the time he sold his old house, and he was driving over to the new home that he was purchasing to sign there. And his senior pastor called him and said, I've just learned this about your past. You're fired. Of course, you can't take out a mortgage when you have no employment. So one day he lost his home, his church, and his job. He ended up moving to Canada and working for a bank. He's doing very well there. But, Lord, how am I going to live? How am I going to obey your calling when you take everything from me at once? Homeless, jobless, churchless, all at the same time. God's message is, I will be with you. You're probably not called to bring any Jews out of Egypt. But you may be called to listen to Widow Jones rattle on. You may be called to help this body get its charitable giving sorted out. You may be called to all kinds of different ministries. In the home, in the workplace, in the school, in the church. Certainly this, you are called to personal godliness that spills over into family discipleship and personal evangelism. Are you listening to that call? To be godly. To be someone who knows the word of God, who would recognize the voice of God calling to you out of the burning bush.
Do you trust that God will be with you when you talk to your children about Jesus? Do you trust that he'll be with you as you attempt to disciple your family? Do you trust that he'll be with you when you tell your boss, I can't do that, that's not right? So God gives Moses a sign to bolster his faith, and this sign really bothers the commentators. This shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. What's the problem with this sign? Well, the sign is supposed to strengthen faith to send Moses back to Egypt, except the sign will not even be given until after Moses has already done the thing he was sent to do. Here's a sign, Moses, that it was really me. You'll get it in one year. Have you ever asked God for a sign and then thought, well, well, I hope God gives me a sign on January 10th, 2022. That would be about the right time for me to have an answer to this question today of whether God is calling me to X, Y, or Z. There's no way around it. The sign demands faith. Moses, you'll know it was really me when you brought the people out of Egypt and you're worshiping God on this mountain. And until then, you'll just have to wonder. And I think there's something of an element to that in discovering God's calling on our lives. God, am I called to go be a missionary in Africa or a housewife in Iowa? Am I called to pastor in Gillette or in New Hampshire? Am I called to work at this job or that job? To pursue a relationship with this person or that one? And sometimes the answer is, well, in a year you'll know. God calls Moses to step out in faith. Right? Ultimately, we will arrive on the mountain height of heaven and worship God there, and then we'll know that the Bible was true, that it was all correct. But before then, right, that sign is coming, but until it comes, we say, Lord... You gave a sign, and yet the sign isn't given until after the walk of faith is complete. There's enough light for those who wish to see, as well as enough darkness for those who wish to say, I can't see. That's how God does it in this world. Pascal made that observation. Those who wish to say, I see no evidence of God in this world, well, there's enough darkness for them to say that. And there's enough light for us to say, no, we have good reason to believe that the Bible is true and that God really did appear to Moses as a flame of fire. Until that day when we worship God on the mountain height of heaven, we do have plenty of other signs 
We have, for example, Moses' record here in this book of encountering God as the self-feeding fire. We have the very existence of the church. And we have the love of Christ that we've experienced from one another in this building. And in our other building, of course, in every place where we gather with God's people. When God calls, when God determines to save, He sends a man to do it. He knew His people's plight, and so He sent a man to deliver them. He knew our plight, and so He sent His Son to become a man to save us. So let's believe His calling, obey His calling, And know that we will come and worship Him on that heavenly mountain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, don't let us be reluctant prophets. Help us to accept Your calling on our lives. To not be held back by our lack of faith by our refusal to do what you have called us to do. Lord, we thank you for Moses, how he became a man mighty in word and deed when he submitted to your calling. We thank you that you went with him. Father, as we leave this place and pursue our everyday callings, we pray that you would go with us. Prepare us to be the church you're calling us to be, to be the individuals, the families, that we ought to be. Grow us in obedience. Help us to listen. Thank you that you save through a called man. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.